And I'm also drinking my coffee from an Aperture Science mug. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. All right, you win. You're the geekiest. <laughs> well, right now. Yeah, right now. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 96 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Katrina Owen. Hello from Denver. James Edward Gray. It's time to take off your gem-crusted boots and put on your hat with that cool snake band. Josh Susser. I... Next time, make me go first because I never know how to follow anybody anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with Jim crusted boots and a hat band, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> but good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Alex Gaynor. Hi, I was not told we needed clever introductions. Right, <laughs> but you came up with one anyway. It's okay, Alex, I've been doing this for over a year, and I still don't have one. (laughs) (laughs) So you want to introduce yourself really quickly, Alex? Sure. So uh, my name's Alex. I I live in San Francisco. I am primarily a uh, Python programmer. I work for a company called RDO.com. We do streaming internet music. And uh, I guess I'm here because I wrote a thing called Topaz, which is a Ruby VM written in Python. So, I guess the obvious question to follow is, why? Right? Uh, (laughs) Well, first and foremost, it was because it was a lot of fun. Uh, A friend of mine was building a PHP VM. He was doing that because he likes pain, I think. And I was, you know, sort of code reviewing it as he went along and started to feel like, gee, writing a VM from scratch looks like a lot of fun. All the VMs I'd worked on before had been you know, big existing things, um, you know, that I sort of came in and worked on once there were already hundreds of thousands of lines of code, and building one from scratch looked like fun. So that was sort of the first and foremost reason. And the second reason was I wanted to demonstrate that RPython, the language that Topaz and PyPy are implemented in, is a, is a really fantastic platform for building high-performance dynamic, dynamic language VMs. So are you far enough along to know that you were wrong and it's not fun, or? No, no, it's it's pretty still much fun? held up. It's, yeah, still fun. After wow. ten months. That's awesome. Sounds like having a child after ten months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I won't pretend there haven't been some angry yelling at my computer moments, but it's been a it's been a very fun experience. <laughs> the uh, it, so um, Ruby or Python. I'm definitely still a Pythonista at heart. Okay. Sorry. I'm sure I've now offended the entire audience of this podcast. That's, that's okay. We forgive you. <laughs> de, de gustibus nonus disputandum. <laughs> One cannot discuss tastes. Uh, Thank you. Nice. Or, or, or the, uh, the idiomatic translation is, uh, there's no accounting for taste. Uh, sorry, I don't know the idiomatic <laughs> translation. I'm <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, I mean, that I mean, doing a VM is impressive uh, for any reason, and doing it for fun is even doubly impressive. So, congratulations! Yeah, 
But, okay, so Alex, you're still a Pythonista, as you said, and you have Python right there, which kind of is almost a competing language with Ruby in many ways. They do a lot of similar things in different ways, right? So what made you want to put Ruby on top of that? I guess it never at any point occurred to me this might be sort of undercutting my position as thinking Python is, you know, clearly the most amazing language and that everyone should use it. That never really occurred to me, which I guess shows a real lack of creativity on my part. I guess uh, I guess I just don't see it as a competitive thing. I think having more good VM implementations for all these all these languages, which you know I prefer writing over C or Java or something, having good VM implementations for all of them is is worthwhile, and you know doesn't undercut the things I care about. That's cool. Okay. It also and- doesn't seem like uh, Ruby and Python really are competitors. Like they they focus on different spaces. Like the Python community seems to focus a lot on um, the scientific uh, sort of side of things, even though with Django there is a good um, sort of easy web, uh, I guess, framework that one can work on, whereas on on Ruby a lot of the focus is on web. Yeah, you got a good point. And and also Python, uh, good for games and... and, uh, event loop programming and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I mean, before I was a compiler author, I worked on Django, and it's basically my day jobs uh, working with Django to build RDO. So I guess I didn't... I've always thought of uh, Python as being, you know, very into the web space. But maybe... I, I guess it is less the dominant player than web is for Ruby. So what other, just sort of out of curiosity, what other large um, websites run on Django? Uh, addons.mozilla.org, uh, Discuss, uh, the commenting tool. This is, you should never, I feel like trying to list the people using uh, your software is a terrible idea. You will always <laughs> forget some. Is Stack, Overf- <laughs> is Stack Overflow Django or is it just Python? I thought it was C sharp to be honest. Really? Oh, well that could be. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> okay, Python, I had no idea. I totally derailed this conversation. Let's yeah. get back to Topaz. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was actually going to ask that. Um what what do you need to run Topaz on your machine? Uh so we put up uh nightly builds for Linux 64 and OS X 64 systems. So if you have one of those, you can just download it and run the binary directly. If you're on some other platform, such as uh, 32-bit machine or Windows, you'll need to uh, get a checkout of the Topaz source code, as well as a checkout of the PyPy repository, and then build it. Now, if you look in the documentation, there are instructions on uh, how to do that. So I have to ask, then, you you said that you can get binaries for uh, Linux 64-bit. Is uh, Python standard enough across 64-bit for you to just give people a binary and just have it work? So this is where the whole Topaz, RPython, PyPy, Python uh, quadrangle, I think, gets a little confusing. Uh, Topaz is written in RPython, which is a subset of uh, the Python language. So if you look at the source code, it looks completely like normal Python code. Which is true, it is. You can run all of Topaz on top of uh, Python. In addition, a part of the PyPy project, which is slowly becoming its own project, 
is the RPython language and compiler. So RPython is the subset of Python that we can run do type inference on. So it's implicitly statically typed. And then we compile RPython down to C and compile that to, uh, you know, obviously with GCC down to assembler. And so the end result of this compilation process is RPython programs can be turned into a single binary. And yes, they're in theory distributable. That, that sounds a little bit like the squeak language layering. So I, sorry, I assume squeak? That, I'm sorry, squeak. Oh, squeak. <laughs> yes, the, uh, uh, the, the small talk uh, virtual machine that was written in small talk. So, yeah, so they, I, it definitely shares a lot of ideas. Obviously, the language sort of being written in itself. Um, I guess the thing I most know small talk for is the, uh, the image design, which this doesn't right. share. Yeah, so, so squeak is, is pretty much what you described. There's, it's a virtual machine that's written in a subset of small talk that can be easily translated to ANSI C and then compiled into a binary of a VM. Yeah, very similar design. So, so. The, uh, uh, there is a great slide deck you sent to us uh, that kind of goes through these different parts, the Ruby interpreter, the Topaz part, and then the translated C and all that. And it talks about how um, you say, and maybe this is actually worth discussing a little bit on the show, and the slide deck, actually it's somebody else's slide deck, but it says... Um, Topaz is not a VM that runs Python and Ruby, which is kind of what we expect when we hear something like this, right? You have JRuby and it runs Java and Ruby, right? Kind of. So um, tell, us, tell us what that all means. Yeah. So first, the slide deck was written by uh, Tim Falentgraf, who worked on uh, Gemstone, which is a project to put a Ruby VM on, or uh, sorry, the project is Maglev, which is a attempt to put Ruby on uh, the Gemstone uh, Smalltalk VM, uh, and he's been helping out with Topaz for quite a long time uh, by now. Uh, but so basically the idea there is when people hear Ruby in Python, depending on where they come from, they either want to be able to somehow use Ruby libraries in Python or use Python libraries in Ruby. And that's that's not really the case here. Basically the design is the whole idea of the RPython translation compilation framework toolchain. I'm never going to refer to that uh, consistently. Uh, but the whole idea is that current models of sort of doing uh, having a single VM design and having a single just-in-time compiler don't really work well. So that was our experience sort of looking at the design of Parrot, of looking at the JVM. Someone uh, on the mailing list once really succinctly uh, wrapped this up once you've decided on a bytecode, an object model, or any of these other details, you've basically designed what languages your VM is going to have first-class support for, where the S in languages is really superfluous. So the idea of RPython is you write your VM basically like you would in any other uh, toolkit uh, for writing a VM from scratch. So a VM written in RPython has a lot of the same design characteristics as one written in C. You write a lexer, you write a parser, uh, you have an AST then, your AST gets compiled to bytecode, and then you write an interpreter for your bytecode. And if you look at the Topaz source, that's basically what you see. If you look at interpreter.py or parser.py or any of these other files. And so from there, basically, we just have an interpreter. We don't have any basis for doing interop with any other language. 
in, including Python, at least not out of the box. Now, That's in it. theory, one of the benefits of sort of building on this framework is we do share a common just-in-time compiler. We do share a common garbage collector. And once support for doing sort of external uh, modules uh, that are written in RPython but not distributed with the VM is, is sort of more there. So RPython does not have good separate compilation support. Everything that's part of the interpreter needs to be built at once. If we had that, you could, in theory, turn Topaz into a module you can load in Python or turn PyPy into a module you could load in Topaz. But those, those were never the big design goals for this project. So what's cool about what you just said, in my opinion, is basically that you're getting to write this in Python. You're not having to write it in C. But in the end, because of how it compiles down to a binary and stuff, you're getting really good performance, right? Yeah, so R Python is a very interesting language. It's incredibly inconvenient in many ways. The error message the compilation error messages you get are terrible. Uh, and it's generally underdocumented. But it is fairly fantastic for writing virtual machines, uh, because that's sort of what it was designed for and the very, very key part of the uh, whole process is sort of the uh, automatic JIT generation. So as a part of compiling an RPython program, if you insert a few hints into the source code about how your interpreter works, and we're talking very small hints, a few lines of code, RPython is able to automatically generate a just-in-time compiler for you. So you mentioned that uh, the compilation errors are, are horrible. In what way? They tend to be long, just lots of text for simple mistakes. They tend to not point you at the place you made a mistake. So you'll pass something of the wrong type in one place, and then you'll get an error you know, in an entirely different file in a function that you don't even think is related. And right. part of that it has to do with just the way the type inferencer works. It's not like someone wrote bad error messages. It's there's a fundamental design consideration that doesn't really go well with good error messages as far as we found. So uh, I, I want to just kind of roll back a little bit. Um, you made it sound almost like you could write a Ruby program in uh, Topaz and then compile it. I may have misunderstood that. No, sorry. This is another one of the in unfortunate uh, confusing bits. No, Topaz is just uh, a Ruby VM. It has okay. sort of the exact same running pattern as C Ruby or Rubinius, you you get a binary, you point it at a Ruby program, it runs. There's there's no separate compilation step. All right. It just meant that the the Python R Python translation mm -hmm. ends up compiling uh topaz down to the to the C binary level. So, yeah. So Alex, I have a couple of questions about uh sort of integration with the rest of the Ruby world. Um, and sure. uh, the fir the first one is: um, Are you paying attention to Ruby spec, and is the VM like passing a bunch of the Ruby specs? Yeah, absolutely. We've been using Ruby spec as uh, our primary uh, test suite for quite a while, and yeah, it's it's been it's an amazing project to work with. Uh, just having all of Ruby documented, sort of method by method, what it needs to do. Cool. I think right now we pass. 5,500 specs or something like that, or we mm -hmm. passed 5,500 expectations, maybe. But yeah, so we're passing a lot of them. There's still lots, lots more to go. But yeah. Well, well, that's cool. The, and, and I'm curious about if you're making any use of 
of Rubinius technology that and and, and that's a, a big question so I'll, I'll refine that a little that um, that uh, Rubinius is meant to be like Ruby written in Ruby and it so a lot more of it is in Ruby code than in C code so that's less C to translate into our Python so I was I'm guessing that maybe you're using some of the Rubinius stuff to reduce the amount of work you have to do we're not using it yet. That's definitely there's an open ticket. Figure out how we can integrate with Rubinius's kernel, which is what they call sort of the pure Ruby implementations of things that are in C Ruby C. Essentially, yes, we'd love to. We're already writing a lot of things in Ruby that are uh, in uh, C Ruby C. So we're trying to write quite a bit of Ruby code and. Uh, yeah, we would ultimately love to sort of share some sort of some amount of the common code with Rubinius. We're not quite there yet. Uh, Rubinius obviously is a much more complete VM, so some of their kernel relies on features that we haven't implemented yet. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely a long-term goal. So how do you how do you write Rub like let's say Topaz is written in R Python. So it has to be in Python, right, for it to be able to compile down to see how yep. where where at which level do you write the Ruby? So the Ruby is is just normal Ruby. If you look in the repository, there's a directory called libtopaz, and essentially when the topaz binary starts up, it just loads all the files in there to get implementations of all those methods. Cool. So that doesn't get compiled down at all. No. Nope. Uh, if you if you check out the uh, the binaries we distribute, there's libtopaz directory right in there. Neat. I have to wonder too. Um, a lot of these uh, alternative VM implementations, like Rubinius, and that's kind of what brought it to mind. Um, they they claim that uh, certain areas of Ruby perform better on their VM than in MRI. Which, I mean, I, I totally get that it probably would work that way from one VM to another, um, depending on what their focus is and what they get out of the way that they built it. Um, have you done any performance uh, or benchmarking? on Topaz versus like MRI or some of the other implementations? So I've done some very limited benchmarking and basically in my experience Topaz is almost across the board faster than, uh, than all the other Ruby implementations. So let me ask you there though, I, I know from looking at that slide deck I mentioned earlier that um, you don't yet have you know some of the key components or at least didn't at the time that deck was made like uh, you know, uh, eval and and uh, 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 set trace funk and uh, you know stuff. Uh, like I that. think that I think that slide was the list of things we do have. We definitely have both set set trace funk and eval. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, you're right. It, you're right. That it was the next slide, right? Fibers, uh, FFI. Am I right now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So is is that is that part of the reason for the speed up that you don't have? everything that Ruby has yet, or no, it's really going to be fast? No, basically, it really will be fast. So fibers are basically similar to what in Python are called greenlets. They're green threads, basically. And basically, the only reason we don't have those is I'm waiting for a branch to land in our Python, which makes support for them a lot cleaner. Um, they should be straightforward and not have a performance impact on the rest of the VM. The same with FFI. FFI is, you know, similar to uh, in Python land C types or CFFI, um, which again will be relying a lot on what the R Python 
uh, support for those libraries is. The, and and the Ruby language version you're targeting is like one nine three. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, I, I'm I'm curious. Uh, is this a bytecoded VM? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a yeah. It's a bytecode VM. The design is superficially pretty similar to the Python VM, actually. Okay. So 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 uh, like Python or PyPy has a has a instruction set, you know, bytecode set, and you're you're basically using the same bytecodes. Uh, no, so that's sort of one of the details of RPython. RPython does not enforce a particular bytecode on you. I happened to choose a design that was very similar to the Python bytecode. It's not, it's not necessary, though. Okay, did, I mean, did you consider looking at the, at the bytecodes? Uh, I think, I think 1.9 has a bytecode set internally, and, and yes. Rubinius definitely has a bytecode set. I didn't look at the 1.9 bytecode. I did look at the Rubinius bytecode. Does, yeah. Is there a problem with the global interpreter lock? Or does uh, our Python just not have that problem? There is no global interpreter lock in Topaz. There are also no threads right now. Mm. Uh, oh, there so you go. Right problem now, solved. <laughs> yeah, that's how you do it. I don't see what the big deal is. Uh, yeah, right now, PyPy does have a global interpreter lock because our Python's garbage collectors are not thread safe, basically. Uh, but Armin Rigo, who is the creator and one of the lead developers of the PyPy project, has been working on software transactional memory support in RPython to basically address this. And for now, I'm just going to sit it out and wait to see how that work goes before adding threads. It, it sounds like you, you know, we, we've asked about a few things and, and you've mentioned that you're waiting for RPython or PyPy to kind of uh, come to the point where it would make some of these things easier. And um, with some open source projects, you can pretty well count on if they say they're going to do it, you're going to get it in a reasonable amount of time. And in other projects, it, it's not always that way. And sometimes these things wind up being way harder to implement than they think they are. And so you wind up waiting a long time for that. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, you know, how long are you willing to wait for some of these before you go ahead and try and implement it on your own anyway? I guess I don't have a fixed timetable. I, I work on R Python, so I have a you know, I work with the people who are working on these projects, so I have a I have a good sense of how long these things are going to be. So the the fiber support I'm waiting on, for example, is we're hoping to have a have it merged into master or default. Sorry, we use Mercurial. Uh, hope we're hoping to have that merged by PyCon, so coming up in like a week and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, STM is a bit of a longer term goal, but I think you know threads as a whole are. I think. There's a lot of other pieces you'd want us to have of Ruby first before you came asking for threads. I mean, it is possible to have threads just with a global interpreter lock. That's that's what PyPy has now. But it just... it. My view was, if there are going to be any design changes we want to make as a result of having a possibly a true multi-threaded interpreter, we may as well wait until we know what that's going to look like. And Armin already has prototypes of the STM work that basically show, yes, we're able to get a linear speed up if you have enough cores. And now he's working on, you know, bringing down the number of cores you need to get a speed up and working on the uh, JIT integration. So Earlier you mentioned that interoperability between, like, Python and Ruby wasn't one of the design goals. What are the design goals? Uh, the primary design goal was, uh, first of all, simplicity being something that someone without a huge VM background could sort of try to read. Uh, and the other design goal was performance. Really wanted to demonstrate that RPython was a platform for building fast VMs. 
Alex, how, how big is the project currently? Uh, I think we're at something like 20,000 lines of R Python and a couple thousand lines of Ruby. How many, <laughs> how many of the features or, you know, these newer features in R Python and PyPy are being driven by this project as opposed to just anything else that relies upon it? So I wouldn't say any of the features I've talked about so far are being driven by this, but probably the biggest thing is if you'd asked me six months ago, basically RPython was a subdirectory in the PyPy repository that was, it wasn't totally an implementation detail of PyPy. Like we knew it was its own project that could stand alone, but it wasn't treated that way. The docs were shared, uh, they, you know, they were in the same directory. And now we're sort of working on really splitting those out into separate repositories that have separate documentation, separate tests, you know, fully sort of independent projects. PyPy will use our Python the same way Topaz will use our Python. Everyone will be a first-class citizen, basically. And that's that's definitely been driven a lot by Topaz and some other VMs that have sprung up uh, using our Python. So I'd also like to know, um, it seems like um, with a lot of the other implementations like JRuby, I know that IronRuby was a thing and I think it is a thing again. Um, some of these other implementations are basically not just other implementations of Ruby, but are actually ways of getting Ruby into those um, infrastructures where uh, people rely on other things like .NET or um, Java. And so since this compiles down, it doesn't actually have ways to hook into Python I'm a little curious if if you considered making that possible, or is that just something that you can't do with our Python and PyPy? Uh, yeah, that was that was never really a design goal for Topaz. Uh, I think someday it will be possible to either use Topaz to embed Python in Ruby or the reverse, but not a not a like priority on the any sort of time scale I can see. Mm. I, okay, I have a little bit different direction in All the right. question here. So, so now that you've gotten your hands dirty on the inside of Ruby, what's the worst part of the language? Single worst part of the language? I would say the complexity of constant lookups. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> or, or more broadly, maybe the number of different scopes. Can, can you, uh, you know, explain that just a little bit? I know, I know some people are at different levels. Sure. I'm not 100% sure what you're where the issues are either, so... Basically, my experience is Ruby has many different types of sort of variables. There's, you know, global variables that start with a dollar sign. There's constants that start with a uh, an uppercase letter. There are local variables that are lowercase, or at least start with a lowercase letter. And there's attributes, which, or uh, sorry, instance variables, which live in one namespace, and methods which live in another. And class variables. Yeah, oh, class variables as well. So it feels like there's many different sort of uh, namespaces or scopes in Ruby. And coming from my, you know, Python, I think, is a more simplistic model for better, you know, or for worse, in mm -hmm. that there are basically attributes, local variables, closures, and global variables. And they all, I guess, uh, attributes look like one thing and then variables of global or closure or local scope sort of look the same. Mm -hmm. It's, it's for me, a very different aesthetic. Yeah. Hey, uh, so in Ruby, uh, you know, like the instance variables that you get in a class or an instance um, are 
they're very lazy or, or they're, they're very much, you know, you utter the name of an instance variable and suddenly it's there in the instance and there's no uh, like pre-declaration of those things in the class definition like there is in Smalltalk or C++. The, it, how is it in Python? Is it the same? Is it you have to pre-declare those things when you define the class or do they just come into being as you mentioned them? Uh, there's no declaration in Python. It's basically, attributes are basically similar to instance variables. The one difference being in Python accessing uh, an attribute that doesn't exist raises an error. In Ruby, if you try to get an instance variable that doesn't exist, you get nil. Okay. So, uh, but the but that uh, dynamic allocation of those things yeah. as part of yeah. an instance is pretty similar. Yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. Kind of continuing along these lines, but taking a different direction. Uh, when we were getting ready for this show, we looked over another slide deck uh, of yours this time. I'm sure, Alex, uh, where it's it's called Why Are uh, Python, Ruby, and JavaScript slow. Uh, and it's a really fascinating slide deck. I, I uh, highly recommend people to look through. And, and basically it amounts to you show how in, you know, see the typical pattern is you allocate some buffer and then you call a bunch of methods passing that buffer along, you know, that just collects the data as you go, right? Uh, whereas in Ruby or Python or JavaScript, all these dynamic languages where the language takes care of growing things for you and stuff like that, what you end up with is if you write this similar idiomatic code, you get um, these, you know, tons of allocations under the hood and stuff, and that's why they end up being slow. And you did a spirited defense of things like dynamic typing and stuff and saying, you know, we can handle that stuff. That's not the problem. Anyways, my question is, uh, are you... Uh, you you said in that slide deck you'd really like to see the APIs expanded to allow for this like you know low level kind of stuff where speed really matters. You know, there's no reason we couldn't have an API where we tell you know how big of an allocation we're going to need here, so it doesn't have to be dynamically done and stuff. And I'm wondering if you created Topaz and you're pushing that as part of trying out this agenda to add the APIs to it and see what can be done. So I would love it if Topaz could become part of sort of a movement, I guess, for lack of a better term, towards having these APIs. But no, I I want Topaz to be an implementation of Ruby where if you write some Ruby code and run it on Topaz, you can run it everywhere. I don't. It's not my intent to embrace and extend Ruby. <laughs> nice, nice eighties gotcha. terminology there. <laughs> you know, Ruby does have some of that. Like I, as I was reading through, I was. I was kind of thinking about uh, what you were saying there, and like the array constructor in yeah, particular. Array dot, yeah, array.new takes the size, you know, which is great. It's, you know, Python doesn't really have that, so. It's interesting, though. You're right, though. I mean, like, array.size is great in that you can pre allocate the size you need if you know it's going to be some kind of fixed thing mm -hmm. or something, and there's no reason we couldn't extend some other methods to work kind of along those lines we, and give ourselves an even richer API. Right? Well, 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 we already have some methods that are mindful of allocation, like the bang methods in the string class. You, yeah. You know, like, like you have reverse bang. Right, and, and, the, and the new uh, lazy evaluators do not need the, the arrays between. They just wire themselves to each other uh, like a pipeline, right? Yeah, yeah the... Yehuda was showing Yehuda Katz was showing me the lazy stuff, and I was really impressed. Those looked like they could be 
you know, a very powerful API for, you know, not giving up, frankly, the things that I like about Ruby and Python, uh, but still getting me, you know, this performance that I want. Yeah, I, well, th- okay, the less said about lazy enumeration right now, the better, but <laughs> I have a beef. <laughs> okay, I'm, I guess I I'm not familiar enough with it. Well, I have, I have a beef with it, but let's not, let, let's not get distracted with that now. The, um, I, so th- I think that the the presentation, the slide deck was was really interesting. I'm sorry I missed the talk at Waza, the uh, but the I, I think that that you have to be really careful when you start getting into things like preallocating memory buffers because you know Ruby is you know it has automatic garbage collection and you need to be careful that you're not doing stuff that's going to break the ability of the language to manage storage for you. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I sort of, I, I don't know if this sh- how well this showed in the slides, but in the talk, one of the things I wanted to make very clear is I don't want to give up how I write Python generally. I don't want to give up sort of all these things I like about the language. I don't want to give up GC across the board. I, I like having the garbage collector. I just want the ability to give small hints that I know matter because right now, even even as we have things like PyPy, like Topaz, like Rubinius, like JRuby trying to push the speed of these languages forward, a lot of the problem is, you know, you write in these languages and, you know, someone will tell you, oh, you're still three times faster than Java, or three times slower than Java. And basically, I would like to be able to say, we will write normal Python for 99% of our application, and or normal Ruby, or whatever. And, you know, then when your boss says, Hey, this part of the thing needs to be really fast. It's, you know, it's really important. It's really CPU intensive. It's whatever it's whatever it is. Be able to say, "Okay, we will continue to write that in the same language. We will just be a little more conscious." Because I don't see Python or Ruby as being inevitably slower. I see it as we've made some design choices along the way that certain APIs are so convenient and even if there's a small performance cost, they're worth it most of the time. But I'd like to be able to, you know, have alternatives for the small places I care about. And I'd like to have a sort of a culture where people care about having these APIs available so that their libraries aren't just, oh, except for if you need to be fast. And I I don't think that's actually against the spirit of Ruby. Like, um, we have things like the O modifier on a regular expression that says compile once. And I'm in the habit of tacking that on when I use something like interpolation for some static value. Like uh, the other day, I had to strip a bomb off of some data, um, and so I, you know, I just knew the escape sequence, and I stuck it in a string, and then forced the encoding to, uh, you know, the right encoding and interpolated that in my regex instead of trying to figure out what you know the right. Uh, regex to build was, but then I dropped the O on the end of the regex so Ruby wouldn't compile it over and over again, right? So we kind of have that in some areas. I'm, I'm a little bit curious as to, uh, well, two things. First off, I'm going to ask, um, so what what are you working on with Topaz right now? Where is it going to be in the near fu- near future? I would say right now one of the biggest things I do day to day is I, I review a lot of pull requests. I've been so amazed with the amount of uh, help I've gotten since Topaz went open source with adding uh, new methods, fixing bugs, uh, just across the board I've been so pleased. 
Can, uh, I, can I interrupt you real quick? Are, sure. Are those mostly coming from Ruby developers or Python developers? I think we're getting some of both, which is you know really exciting. It's definitely awesome to see. Hey. I'm a Python person. I haven't done Ruby in you know two years. This is my best attempt at adding this feature, and I'm not a I'm a Ruby programmer. I'm not sure I understand the Python code perfectly, but here's my attempt. It's we've definitely seen both of those, and it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Anyway, back to where you're going to be yeah. in your future. Probably the next big feature I want to start working on is FFI. Topaz will probably never support uh, the Ruby C API. And so we need a way to bind C libraries for things like database adapters and, you know, whatever else. So I think FFI is, you know, has good support from all the Ruby VMs right now. I know JRuby, Rubinius, uh, CRuby all have it. So going uh, towards that is probably going to be the next big feature. Yeah, also, obviously, just continuing to target more specs. Uh, one of the things we really appreciate, if uh, if you try to run your Ruby code on Topaz and you get a no method error or something, let us know what methods, you know, are missing for your code because, you know, the more we see we're missing something, just the higher we'll prioritize it. Right. So uh, it seems like there are some milestones for Ruby implementations. One of them is, you know, implementing a certain amount of Ruby spec. It seems like another one that people talk about, depending on how involved they are with Rails, is whether or not it will run Rails. Just Topaz, if I if I put a Rails app and try and run it on Topaz, is it going to work? No, not not by far. It's uh, the end game, right? <laughs> yeah, Rails is like the holy grail. I think if you run Rails, you'll run most things. No, sort of at the most basic level, uh, there's no way you'd be able to put anything on the internet because we don't have a socket module. Uh-huh. So that seems like kind of an important place to start. On a more basic level, I'm sure we're missing sort of so many methods along the way. I can't even imagine what Rails would fail on first. If you tried to run it, then my last my last question un- until I think of more obviously um, is so you're you're now part of this Ruby Ruby Implementers Club, so so are you and Charlie Nutter like bros uh, or how does that all work? Uh yeah no the in building Topaz the cooperation of uh Charlie uh and Evan Phoenix and Brian Ford from Rubinius has been fantastic they w- they all helped me so much with uh questions about the language, uh, places that they thought were, uh, you know, places to be really conscious of performance, stuff like that. Uh, a few months ago, Charlie published a blog post, you know, I can't remember his title, but it was basically things that in Ruby that you have to get right in order to, you know, say that you're a legitimately fast implementation and it's jo- and it's not just, oh, you're missing things. And it, that was basically, uh, you know, from an email he sent to me about, you know, that very same question. I wanted to make sure I knew all the places in Ruby that we had to get right before it would be honest to do a benchmark. So, so yeah, the working with them has been fantastic. So how much do you want to implement before you declare as first stable version? That's a really good question. I'm a I'm a big believer that releases should just be nightly builds with the version number bumped. So, you know, I'm really pleased we have a pretty good release infrastructure right now. Every time the tests run on Travis, we upload a build. To actually put out a version number, that's a really good question. Um, I would love to say something like, you know, it runs Ruby gems or something. Uh, something like, hey, you could maybe, in theory, try to run something that kind of looks like a real program. But 
you know, right now I don't know the scope of how big it is to get ruby gems running, so maybe it'll be something smaller, like as soon as we pass 10,000 ruby specs or something. Right. So, so you mentioned running ruby gems. How much of your development is driven by we want to be able to run X versus, you know, maybe we need these features like FFI? So for a very long time, the development of uh, Topaz was basically spurred by, okay, what's the next feature we need to run M-Spec? M-Spec is the test runner for Ruby spec, mm-hmm. and it requires a decent amount of Ruby to get going. So yeah, that was definitely sort of where I started, and I imagine we'll be coming back towards that direction uh, very soon with Ruby Gems or Rails or Sinatra or whatever it is. You know, finding a real Ruby program and just sort of finding what are the methods we're missing. Yeah. Hey, hey, where did you where did you start? <laughs> like, like, what what was the first spec that you got to pass? Line uh, plus two. Well, well so, it, it, I, I believe think the first yeah. the first spec was probably like fix num even or something. Hmm. But that first spec came six months, maybe more after I started. The very first thing I implemented in Topaz was sort of adding. I think very basic parsing. So originally, the for a long time, the Topaz parser was sort of a homegrown thing, and the, which parsed some subset of Ruby. Mm-hmm. I want to say within the first week, though, I had a, a real interpreter and sort of really starting on the object model, really starting on calling real methods. You'd have to you'd have to go back in the Git history. It's all there. See how it evolved. Right, and 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 how how are you doing the um the actual parser and compiler so the parser is basically uh there's a, a library in python called ply which is python luxiac luxiac are pretty common unix uh parsing tools sure and basically so this python library is a port of them to python i created rply which is a port of that to rpython and basically the uh the grammar is a direct port of a uh, MRI and JRubies, which are you know both very similar mm-hmm. uh, to this. Yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't dug into the code for it, but my understanding is that the parser for Ruby is uh, kind of complex. Yeah, the parser for Ruby is definitely the most complex I've ever worked with. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I guess there are parts of the language that aren't even context-free. Uh, yeah, it's pretty subtle. So if you see F space left bracket right bracket is that calling the method F with a hash or is that uh, invoking F with an empty block <laughs> yeah if you see A space plus B is that invoking the method A on positive B or is that A plus B right and then there's here docs oh yes <laughs> great fun yeah so Prep. Uh, Dave Thomas has some great talks uh, he gave a couple years back where he would just play with like uh, a subset of of uh, Ruby. He w- he would put up a nasty thing that that turned out to be it just looked like letters and slashes, but it was actually a regular expression. Then with like modes, and then he would just start making subtle changes, like you know move this over, add another token, put in a space here. And it, it was almost schizophrenic what Ruby would do each time. I mean, like, you know, it would start off, oh, that's a regex. Oh, that, that's division. Oh, when I put a space in here, it's a syntax error. <laughs> it's just great. It's, it sounds like Gary's Watt talk. 
Yeah, 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 it's a lot like that, right? Yeah, and, I mean, this is compounded by I have friends who, for them, the fun part of writing a compiler is figuring out the parser. For me, it's not. I, for me, a parser is an annoying thing you have to write before you get to the fun part. So, <laughs> it's all about code generation. Exactly. So, could you team up with these friends, get them to write the parser for you? I mean, yeah, I, I worked with you know, a number of friends who enjoy this field a whole lot more than I do. And, you know, that's why ultimately we started with our own homegrown thing, but really moved to just a port of JRuby and MRIs. Right. So what, what is, what is the feature in Ruby that you have to implement in order to make Ruby work, but that nobody really uses or knows about or uses wrong that that's acceptable as well. I think using, uh, things like break and next inside of a block they're probably not very frequently used, and they're incredibly subtle, has been my experience. Also, something like rescue, or, or sorry, not rescue, retry. I don't think I've really seen retry used in real Ruby code, but there I it use, is. I use retry. So, yeah. Okay, shows what yeah, I know. I, I use it too. I don't even know what it does. <laughs> it basically lets you go back to the top of a begin and start over. Uh, oh. Like it's like next, only you don't move on to the next iteration. You retry the current iteration. Really, the only place I have ever seen it used, and the only place I've ever used it for sure, is in a rescue block where I might want to, you know, maybe I'm making a remote call and I'm willing to try it three times or something like that, or try it with an exponential back off, so do a sleep and then retry or something. Uh, that that's where it comes in most handy, in my opinion, is error rescue. That's where I've used it as well. Um, though I go to twenty five, not to three. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Why are you tweeting me twenty five times? I know. Now I feel like all my all my code, you know, is is not as good because I don't I don't hammer that service enough. <laughs> it's it was desperation, not anything smart from my on my part. <laughs> Desperation is the mother of cursing? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get in there, well, get in there, get in there, get in there. <laughs> hey, keep trying. Don't give up. Well, the project sounds awesome, Alex. It's really cool. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah definitely. What a fun, you guys. Yeah, what a fun project. The, I, I actually have, have one last little uh, comparison question, and that's, you know, it. it you know, in, in implementing Ruby, have you learned anything or have you discovered anything in Ruby that you really want to have in Python? Yeah. Uh, you know, I discovered this a little before I started the project from speaking with Gary Bernhardt, but I would, I absolutely love blocks. It's just that every time I try to sit down and you know, write how would blocks work in Python, I find things that make me sad. So I'm deeply afraid I'll never get blocks in Python. <laughs> uh, they're, they're really hard. <laughs> It's just, it's it's crazy to make them work right, but the, yeah. but they are they are like one of the most awesome parts of the language. Yeah, they're so useful in just crafting great APIs. Agreed. Yeah, they definitely make your code cleaner, if not more. Uh, what's the word? Usable, I guess. <laughs> they they do a lot. I'm, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Anyway, functional. Functional, yeah. That's a pun. Uh, okay, so <laughs> the, um, okay. So have we exhausted this topic? Let's do some picks. Yeah. Okay, let's picks. Um, Katrina, what are your picks? 
Wait for it. Digital telepathy. Isn't that awesome? That's totally okay. awesome. Okay. Uh, they, <laughs> they've made electronic temporary tattoos where um, it picks up uh, brain signals. And so you can basically talk to someone who also has one of these without talking. And they're working on making it so that you can like fly an airplane and all of that cool stuff as well. And it has useful applications for like uh, putting these on on preterm babies so that you can detect uh, the onset of seizures and you know real stuff as well. But digital telepathy. That's awesome. That's my only pick. Well, that, that's the only one you need, right? <laughs> it's, it's awesome. James, you're broadcasting again. <laughs> Why are you thinking about pancakes? I yeah, always not. think about pancakes. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, all the times that my wife's mad at me and I'm oblivious. I just, I don't know if I want this. <laughs> anyway, uh, James, what are your picks? Uh, okay, I've got a few, but I'm going to run through them really quick. Um, I basically rediscovered the iOS recently and, I mean, like, really got into it and, and playing with a bunch of apps and stuff. And one of the things I wanted was a good text editor for just, like, little edits I have to do on my iPhone. Um, and there's an awesome comparison of text editors at this link I'll put in the show notes that tells you, like, everything you can possibly imagine about them from where they store their files to how they handle markdown and syntax highlighting and stuff. Two cool editors I found because of it are Textastic, uh, which is pretty nice for editing. Uh, a little Ruby file on your phone if you need to do that. And uh, the other one I really like is Nebulous Notes, um, which is great if you want to do markdown on your phone. And it also has an awesome macro system, which means you can get pretty fast, uh, even with a touchscreen keyboard, which is cool. And in rediscovering the iOS, of course, I, I've been uh, uh, finding a bunch of games there's some great lists out there about like 25 best all times games or the 50 best of uh, 2012, and I used both of those. Uh, I found several great games off of it, but just the one I'll throw out here uh, as a lot of fun is uh, Outwitters. It's a strategy game that it seems nobody in the world has discovered, uh, but it's a turn-by-turn -turn strategy game. It's a total blast. So. If you enjoy that kind of thing, you should check it out. And then I should probably just also say that the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe last week talked about digital telepathy, and they said, no way. That's it. Bye. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, what are your picks? I'm going to start with the thing that made my life most awesome in the last week. And that's, uh, there's been a little discussion recently about Heroku and the, um, the router and queuing requests and, um, and performance uh, hits on your application. So I, I looked at my application, which is running on Heroku, and it's still early days in my application. So it's, you know, it's no rap genius level of traffic. But um, I noticed that I was getting hit by the request queuing, and I did the incredibly simple thing of just moving all of my static assets to S3, which made, um, which made my app much more responsive. Uh, you know, yes, it's kind of dumb serving static assets off of a Heroku Dino, so this is obvious. But there's this great uh, gem called Asset Sync, 
that I used to do it, and it made it like completely trivial. It took me very little effort to move all of my assets to S3, and I recommend everybody who's doing Heroku um, for their application do this. Um, so that's the asset sync gem. And then a fun pick is a couple months ago I mentioned the Powers comic, that which I was uh, rereading all the graphic novels um, for it because the new comic was coming out. And yes, they've restarted the comic, so I'm picking it. Uh, this is uh, this is the second uh, part of the of the storyline, I guess, and they've uh, now ascended from being policemen to going up into the big leagues. So. It's, uh, you know, whatever that means. I won't give it all away. But the uh, title is Pow Powers Bureau, which um, apparently they couldn't call Powers FBI for, re for legal reasons. <laughs> so there's that. And then, uh, and then I have kind of a fun geeky pick, which is um, stirftimer.com. And I'll just leave that there because <laughs> it's worth checking out. It's really fun. So um, and, and actually kind of useful. And that's it for my picks this week. All right. Um, I've got a couple of picks. The first one is uh, I used to use a program called Teleport on my Macs to allow me to move my mouse and use my keyboard across multiple machines. And it just it hasn't worked since I upgraded to Mountain Lion. I don't know why. Um, I don't really care anymore. Um, I just gave up on it and moved over to Synergy, which was something that I used a long time ago. Um, the thing I like about Synergy was that it, it works cross-platform, which Teleport didn't do. But the other thing is is that uh, it it has a configuration in it now where you actually just tell it where you want each machine relative to the other machines, and it just works. Um, the way that it worked before is you had this config file, so it's like if I go all the way to the left on this machine, then I should wind up on this other machine, and then you config things for, you know, when I move up from that machine, I should hit this other machine. And, you know, it was kind of a pain in the neck. Well, now you just click, 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 start, and you're done. And so I, I really, really like it. Um, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. The other one that I found this uh, this last week is something that uh, one of my clients, um, I, I picked up a, a, a customer from another uh, freelancer who kind of changed directions and was referring out his uh, leads or his customers. And so I, I picked up this customer and... Um, they were using this gem called Astrails-Safe to back up their databases, and I just thought that was way cool. So um, I'm, I'm going to pick that as well. It's, it just does a quick uh, MySQL dump or a dump of PostgreSQL. Um, it does some other stuff too, but anyway, you can back up to uh, local files. You can back up to Amazon, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so uh, I was I was pretty impressed. So I'll pick those, and we will let Alex give us his picks. All right, so first pick is a book called Fair Play by uh, Stephen Landsberg. It's uh, kind of an interesting economics and sort of life book, which I enjoyed. Next pick is a uh, Python library called Werkzeug. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. It's German. But it's, uh, it's a Python web library, and it's got a really fascinating design. In that it's not a web framework like anything I've ever seen before. It's, it's really a library so you write your application from end to end, and you you know if you want, you instantiate its request object or you instantiate its response object. And uh, I just think it's a it's a really fascinating design that everyone should check out. And last pick is a uh, it's a textbook I read uh, while I was in college called Gender Through the Prism of Difference, which I uh, 
thought it was really awesome. It's got some really fantastic essays in there. So yeah, nice. those are my picks. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Alex. It's been fun talking, and, and there are definitely some uh, interesting uh, things that I, I learned, at least, about building a VM and some of the stuff out there. So thanks. Thanks for coming. Thank also, you guys so much for having me. Also, you have scary hobbies. <laughs> Just saying. They're not so scary. Hey, he's, no. bu- he's building a VM for fun. What do you expect? <laughs> no, I think it's really cool. I do. It's it's really awesome. <laughs> They're not so scary once you get to know them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>